As we approach the end of a really challenging year, we'd like to thank all of our guests who've provided so much help and support for us and all of our listeners. And we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for hanging in there with us. We've all learned a lot in 2020, and we're looking forward to a chance to apply what we've learned in circumstances where there are fewer external threats. And now we return to our regularly scheduled podcast. The pandemic forced many faculty to experiment in different modalities in 2020. In this episode, we reflect on our own teaching experiences with synchronous online courses this year. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Over the past few months, we've talked a lot about the pandemic and ways to adjust our teaching. And we've talked a lot about online learning, but we haven't really focused on synchronous learning. John and I both taught synchronously this semester, so we decided that in this episode, we would focus a little bit more on synchronous learning and what we've learned about it in our own experiments in our classes. Our teas today are... I have Scottish breakfast once again. And I have a blend of spearmint and peppermint tea. That sounds much healthier than my choice. It's not my first tea of the day. This is not mine either. (laughs) This is my first herbal tea of the day. This is my second pot of the day. (laughs) So Rebecca, what classes were you teaching this fall? I was teaching two design classes that are smaller. So I had one web design course that was stacked. So it had beginning, intermediate, and advanced students in it, 25 students. And we met synchronously, but also had asynchronous classes. It's considered a studio course. So for a three credit course, we have six hours of class time and three hours of outside work, which is a different balance than maybe other folks. And then the other class I was teaching was a special topics design course, which was smaller. It was about 10 students. And that class was also synchronous, but it was a projects-based class. And we worked on two community design projects, one for a project called Vote Oswego, which was a get out the vote initiative on campus. And the second is a project called Recollection, which is a storytelling project with adult care facilities. And we do have an earlier podcast on an earlier iteration of Vote Oswego. So we'll include a link to that in the show notes. So John, what kind of classes were you teaching? We obviously don't teach the same thing. I was teaching two classes this fall. One was a large synchronous session with 288 students, and the other was a fully asynchronous section with 60 students this semester. And what level were the students in both of your classes? These were both introductory economics classes. So most students in the class were freshmen, and it was their first economics course. So your classes are much larger than mine. You're teaching much more younger students or newer students. And my classes are smaller, project-based, and usually junior, senior students. Yes. And there's certainly some differences in the disciplines as well. Nah, they're the same. (laughs) Why did you choose a synchronous mode of delivery rather than an asynchronous mode or a face-to-face option this fall? So I chose not to do face-to-face delivery for my own health reasons. I chose to not be on campus for my own safety because I have a chronic illness. So I chose specifically to 
have strong synchronous components because a lot of our students are used to working in a studio together and having a community around each other and kind of feed off of each other's work and work collaboratively. And I wanted, because of the classes I was teaching, to continue to have collaboration as a key part of my class. And I was really concerned that if I didn't have a strong synchronous component, my students wouldn't be able to effectively collaborate with each other because there would be too much scheduling issues and what have you. So it's a little bit of a carryover from the way that I would run my classes in person in that I give a lot of class time to project-based learning and team-based work and do a lot of lectures and things like that asynchronously in like a flipped classroom style. How about you, John? Basically, I tried to preserve something as close as possible to what was originally scheduled or what was originally planned. And my large class is typically about 400 to 420 students. And I just couldn't imagine taking that class and doing it in a completely asynchronous manner because when I teach a class asynchronously, I give students lots of individual feedback and it would be really challenging providing individual feedback to several hundred students. I just didn't really have the time to do it in that sort of mode. So I thought it was better to work in a mode where I could give students feedback in a group setting using some interactive tools where they're all getting feedback at once. It was the only way I could see handling a group that large. If I was trying to do it as an online class, it would be effectively more in the form of a MOOC with very little interaction, either among the students or between me and the students. One of the things that we both talked about before we started recording was how we both used a flipped classroom model to help with our synchronous sessions. So can you talk a little bit about how you did that and what students were doing outside of class? This is actually in many ways similar to what I had done in a face-to-face class. Before each class, students would have some readings to work through. And I used the Lumen Learning Waymaker package, which is basically taking materials from a textbook, combining it with interactive multimedia where they got to shift demand and supply curves and other curves around and see how they responded when they changed parameters. And they'd read a bit in that online text, and then they would work through some problems on it where they were allowed multiple attempts at those problems. I also created some videos with embedded questions that were at a somewhat higher level than the textbook readings, which was a little bit more challenging. And they were given unlimited attempts to work through those videos with the questions. And they also, outside of class, participated in discussion boards where I asked them to relate what they were learning to things in the world around them and their own lives and their own experiences. Nice little inclusive teaching practice right there, right? Connecting students with their experience and making it relevant to them. Right. Because we know that students learn things most effectively when it has some salience, when they see the relevance to their life. And the Waymaker package, if I remember correctly, had some quizzing and stuff associated with that and unlimited attempts, a version of retrieval practice there. It's a mix of things with unlimited attempts and limited attempts. So the microeconomics Waymaker package is designed, and all of their Waymaker packages, for that matter, are designed, is that they start with a list of broad learning objectives, and they break it down at each module level to sub-objectives, and they break those down into sub-modules. So in what would have been the equivalent of a chapter or a textbook, there's usually two to four sub-modules on particular aspects of that, and students work through that, and embedded in it, they have some review questions, some practice questions, and those they can take an unlimited number of times at any point in the course. Once they complete the module, they have a module quiz where they are limited to only two attempts at it, but they're getting feedback on what they did well and what they didn't do well. It's automatically color-coded to indicate whether they 
mastered the material in one of the blocks of content in there. And then if they take the module quiz, it will give them feedback on what areas they did well and what areas they need to work at more. And they're being directed back to the areas that they need to review. And there they do have unlimited practice opportunities. And the other thing I did is I created my own videos that focus primarily on the topics that students generally find the most challenging. And in economics, that's generally with either applications involving math or involving graphs. It was one module a week. And I would take the topics that I know from past experience they were likely to have the most problems with. I create my own videos with that. And I was using PlayPosit, which allows you to embed questions in that. Most of those videos I created were between five and 12 minutes in length. They would watch the videos and answer questions as they were going. And if they got one of the questions wrong, they could go back and replay that portion of the video and then try it again. And they were given unlimited opportunities for that. I think you mentioned students really loved those opportunities. At the end of the class, I gave them a Jamboard which I know is something you've used more regularly, asking them what worked well. And there was very much universal agreement on the PlayPosit as well as on the Waymaker aspects of the course. They really liked the fact that there were practice activities embedded right in their textbook and they could go back and try things over and over again until they mastered it. And it was giving them feedback on whether they had, in fact, attained mastery at every step. And it was a nice visual indication of what they've learned and what they still needed to work on more. Excellent. What did you do in your asynchronous components of your class? Well, the balance of my classes, I mentioned before, is a little wonky in that we're supposed to spend more time in class and less time out. So asynchronously, I did a lot of independent stuff that students were not necessarily doing collaboratively. So this is where I had lecture videos that are recorded that were about the topics that they were going to be working on or introduced the component of the project that they were going to be doing. And then they also were completing things like LinkedIn learning tutorials. And we also have access to DQ University, which is a set of tutorials for accessibility and teaches accessibility. So I took advantage of that package as well. And largely they were completing those kinds of tutorials. Both of those have exercise files and that kind of thing that they can follow along with. They get little certificates when they're done completing. There's little quiz questions and stuff. So they were doing a lot of that kind of work asynchronously. They were also using Slack to communicate with their teams for independent things that they were working on that they needed to communicate out to teams when they were working on projects together. And I also use Slack as a place to have discussions. So like you, I had discussion questions that tried to make what we were talking about relevant We were exploring design, specifically web design, and how they interacted as a consumer versus how they would interact as a maker and did a lot of observational studies. We also did some discussion boards that were really about design activities and things that got students off the computer. So they were just documenting what they did off screen, offline. So things like listening to a podcast so that they didn't have to be staring at a screen and what their takeaways were. They attended virtual conferences, which I guess was still on screen, and did some sketching like paper prototyping and some other methods that we like to encourage our students to do just to kind of help balance the screen time a little bit for students. So that's largely what they were doing asynchronously. Were you having them submit some copies of that work in some way, or were they just reflecting on the work that they had done? The little non-screen activities were documented in a discussion, essentially, that we were holding on Slack. And then tutorials and things, they were just submitting their completed certificates. And so I broke down those LinkedIn learning courses and things over multiple weeks. So they didn't really submit those certificates until they were completed, but they were doing a little bit by little bit. 
But if they didn't do the tutorials, they wouldn't be able to do the projects or the actual work that we were doing of the class. So it was pretty important that they were doing those components outside of class. Once your students were in class, what did you have them do in a typical class session? The two classes I was teaching, I handled a bit differently because of just the sheer volume of students. (laughs) In the bigger class, which was 25 students that were working on projects, they were working on collaborative projects in teams of three for the most part. And so what we would often do is show and tells or critiques in small groups. So let's say there was two or three teams together that we would do a little critique with in a breakout room while other teams were meeting and collaborating. We would also do things like come together to answer questions about things that they were working on, troubleshoot or whatever, and then go work on projects in breakouts for a bit. And then we would come back at a scheduled time. I also did one-on-one meetings with students during class time. So I'd set up things like a quiet work breakout room or the chatty breakout room. And students would pick the place that they wanted to go while they were working on projects. And then I would meet with them individually for critique. And often a lot of code troubleshooting is a lot of what I spend synchronous time doing. And students sometimes met with my TA to do the same thing and with our small groups. I also did a lot of design challenges and students really like those and would like to do more to hold them accountable for the kind of material that they were learning outside of class or being introduced to outside of class in a low stakes environment to test it out with some peers and troubleshoot. So I would pose a little design problem and then they'd work in a small group to work on that problem in a very tight amount of time. They might spend 30 minutes, my classes are three hours long, or an hour, and then we'd come back and show them off or talk about different things. And I tried to make those design challenges fun and entertaining. So one of the first things we did, which worked really well to start gelling their teams that they were with the whole semester, was designing an emoji for Slack that they used for their team. And they loved that assignment. It was partly about working at a small size, and so it was tied to some of the curriculum that we were doing, but it was fun. So they did that in a small team and then had to implement it. Later on in the semester, we did things like a 404 error page for their projects, which were just kind of entertaining. We tried to make them amusing so that if you landed on a page, it was a good user experience. So things that maybe you wouldn't typically work on in one of my classes that were a little bit more fun, but really were emphasizing the technical and conceptual things that we were working on. The other thing that we use synchronous time for is I took advantage of our virtual platform and I brought in alumni multiple times and local designers multiple times and did little Q&As with them. Not every week, but every few weeks or every couple weeks, I would bring in a designer for a 30-minute session. They'd introduce their work and then students did a Q&A with them, which students really loved. And it broke up our time a bit and really gave them something special that maybe we didn't always do in a face-to-face class that made this synchronous environment kind of special. Excellent. That is a nice opportunity provided by Zoom that actually could work in a classroom too, but I think many of us just hadn't really considered it so much. It doesn't really matter where you are when you're teaching in this sort of synchronous environment. So it's very easy to bring in guest speakers, and it's something we probably should have been doing more of in the past, but I think many of us will be doing more in the future. So John, how did you use your synchronous time? I had told students before each class session what specific topics we'd be working on. And then most of the class time was spent asking them a series of problems of progressively higher levels of challenge. I basically adopted Eric Mazur's clicker strategy of trying to find challenging questions where roughly half the class will get it wrong the first time and then letting them meet. In this case, I had them meet in breakout rooms, discussing it and coming back and voting again on it. 
And generally, you'd see a fairly significant increase in the performance after they've had that chance to engage in peer discussion. And that's where a lot of the learning seems to happen when clickers are being used. I used iClicker. The only difference is students could not use a physical radio frequency clicker because they have a range of a couple hundred meters and students were spread out all over the world. I had one student in Egypt. I had students in South America and students spread throughout the country this time. So they needed to use either their laptop or a mobile device in order to do that. We discussed it as a whole class after they come back from the breakout rooms. And then I'd ask them to explain their choices. I generally have them use chat. And then I'd go through and correct any misperceptions they'd have. And I'd try to guide them to the correct answer by asking them questions and letting them see for themselves why some of the answers were right and some of them were wrong. And generally, that's how we spent many of our classes. Initially, I was also using Kahoot from time to time. They enjoyed Kahoot, but I noticed a bit of a drop off when we were doing the Kahoot sessions because those were not graded. And with the clicker questions, they were being graded, and that tended to receive a somewhat higher level of interest. It was very low stakes. They got a certain number of points for for an incorrect answer on either attempt, and they got a bit more points when they answered the question correctly. And initially, I was giving them three points for an incorrect answer and five for a correct one. And they asked if perhaps that could be bumped up because some of the questions were so challenging. And I did raise it. So they ended up getting four points for any answer and five points for a correct answer. So it was extremely low stakes. So I tried to do a lot of retrieval practice in the class where it started from essentially no stakes with the embedded questions in the reading. Then it ramped up to in-class applications of this where they'd still get 80% even if they got it wrong, but they had another chance to get it correct. And then they took that module quiz and even there, they had two attempts at it. So if they made mistakes, they had lots of resources they could go back to and work on it. So I tried to set it up and provide them with many pathways to attain mastery of the content and to encourage a growth mindset and to encourage them to recognize that people make mistakes when they're learning and that there's a lot of benefit from having those mistakes as part of your learning process. There's a lot of research that shows that if we get them wrong, when we first try it, we're much more likely to remember it later on than if we happen to get it correct initially. In that case, we're much more likely to forget it a bit later. And that was a bit of a challenge for students, but I think they eventually appreciated the fact that everything was fairly low stakes. I think I'm seeing some themes in the things that, although we're teaching very different classes in very different contexts, there's some real big themes about how we're using our synchronous time and even how we're using our asynchronous time. And so there's an emphasis on peer interaction and establishing those peer networks, really enforcing or reinforcing things and dealing with muddy points. And then also just providing the encouragement and support like that low stakes environment or trying to foster a growth mindset. So in my classes, I did the same thing. I was doing peer group work and trying to really get them to collaborate and demos and troubleshooting when there was a really troublesome technical component or something that they were trying to do that a lot of them were having trouble with that they could ask me live questions. So that same muddy point kind of thing that you were getting to and what you were discussing. And then finally, the growth mindset that you started bringing up, I also tried to do. And although I didn't have a lot of low stakes testing or something like that, I set my projects up so they were done in sprints. So a long full semester project was broken into multiple two-week sprints where they would work on something, get feedback, 
and then could revisit whatever they did and then add a new component to it. And so I did that throughout the whole semester. So there was a bit of retrieval practice, a bit of space practice in there, and certainly some fostering of growth mindset and the idea that you make mistakes and that's how you learn. And I spent a lot of time, I don't know if you experienced this too, John, but I experienced a lot of time in synchronous time saying like, you can do this, it'll be okay. (laughs) And this is how the learning experience works. And I did have to do a lot of that, especially in the first few weeks of the semester, because they were not used to a flipped class environment. And they were not used to this notion of making mistakes and learning from mistakes as part of your learning process, because most of them have come up through their elementary and secondary school system, thinking that they need to memorize some things and reproduce it on exams. And they do well if they get high scores and they don't make mistakes. And that's just not how we learn in general. And it was important, I think, to help remind them of that. Another aspect of the flipped class environment that we were both using is that we let students learn some of the basic skills, the easy things that they can learn pretty easily on their own from other resources. And we were trying to focus our class time using essentially a just-in-time teaching approach where you focus on the things that students always have trouble. In a traditional classroom environment, what normally happens is students will learn the easy stuff in class where faculty will lecture them on basic definitions and basic concepts. And then it all makes a lot of sense until students try to apply it. And they try to apply it typically in assignments outside of class or in high stakes exams. And it's much more productive if the students use the time outside of class to master those basic concepts. And then we hold them accountable for having done that somehow in class. And then we give them assistance on the things that they find challenging when they need it, not after they've had that experience of a more high stakes assessment in some way. Yeah, I think what I found or that students really shared with me that was something that they really appreciated was that there was a lot of structured time to work on those difficult problems in class. This is true of my face-to-face classes too, but even maybe more so in this online environment where students were having a really hard time managing their time. I would allow time to work on a project during class. It was scheduled, but then there was a check-in point later on in the day. You wouldn't want to spend three hours staring at a screen on Zoom. Like, this makes no sense. So I certainly did not do that. And I don't want anyone to think that I did that. (laughs) But I would do things like, okay, we're going to check in at 930. And then we're going to do a little activity together. And then you're going to have some work time to work on X. And then we're going to come back at 11. And you're going to show me what you did. And then we're going to have a little discussion or do another little activity. And then we're going to come back again at 12. And we would have a schedule where there was time to kind of come back. What I found is over time, students often wouldn't actually get off of Zoom. They would just turn their cameras off and their microphones off. And I would do the same if it was like a work time. And then when we all came back on, a lot of students would turn the media back on. That said, I, of course, did not require that depending on where students were. I certainly had students that were in environments where they couldn't turn their cameras on or had really poor internet connections. We adjusted as necessary there, and we had a way to communicate in a much more low-tech fashion using Slack during class time. So if something happened with someone's internet connection or whatever, they could still stay connected with us in what we're doing. How did you assess student learning in your class? My classes, they're all project-based. So the majority of grades are built on projects. Not entirely, I had discussion boards and I had some collaboration things that they were doing and they were evaluated on those things as well. But projects were the significant piece of the puzzle. 
And the way that I graded them was really just providing feedback about the kinds of things I was going to ultimately grade very regularly throughout the semester. So every couple of weeks, they were getting feedback on their code for my web class, for example, feedback on their design, feedback on their writing, not a specific grade necessarily, but feedback on all of those elements that were going to go into the final project. And then the ability to revise all of those again and again and again and continue to get feedback on those. Did you have your students engage in any reflective tasks? Yeah, that's a really great question, John. I had reflection built in two ways. So at the end of each sprint or kind of module in my class, they were working on two projects at the same time throughout the semester. So they'd work kind of two weeks on one project, two weeks on the next project and cycle back. That was so that I had time to give them feedback regularly. (laughs) So that was part of my structure. But at the end of one of those modules, I had a reflection activity that I implemented using a Google form. So a few different prompts to think about what they got out of that sprint goals for their next sprint, that kind of thing. And then I also had some big group reflections at different moments during the semester. I had one at the beginning and a couple in the middle and one at the end. And I used Jamboard for that, which is a Google suite tool that has sticky notes and is the same kind of way that you might brainstorm. So I use it as a way to collect reflections in sticky note form, essentially, virtually. And I would have a reflection question for folks to respond to or a couple of different boards with different kinds of questions. In the beginning, we did something called hopes and fears, which is something I've talked about before. Setting up the class, like what are they hopeful that they're going to get out of a collaborative project? What are they scared about? We find out that like all the teams had the same hopes and fears. During the middle of the semester, what are some of the big takeaways that you've had? What are some things that you want to work on? What are some things that you'd like to see changed about the class? And various themes bubble up on that. And then at the end of the semester, I asked questions like, what was your biggest takeaway? What was the thing you were surprised that you learned? What is one recommendation of something you would change in this semester? And what's something that you want to continue learning? And I got really useful feedback on what to change about the class, but also some really great themes bubbled up across the class, which really resulted in like kind of three or four things for each of those questions, which was a nice way to wrap up the end of the class and summarize for students after they completed that task. And one thing that I like about the Jamboard is that it actually ends up being anonymous. You can see people while they're working on it, but it doesn't keep a name with the sticky ultimately. So you can see who's active in the board, but you don't see who is writing which note. Yeah, exactly. So that worked really well for me. How about you, John? Were you able to build in reflection? I know you have such a big class, so it can be tricky. I wasn't able to do as much of that with my large section, but I did have them do that to some extent in their discussions. For one discussion forum in both classes, I had them use a tool called Packback, which uses artificial intelligence to give students some feedback as they're writing their prompts. And each week, students had to post a question related to that week's material, and they had to respond to at least a couple other people. But one of the nice things about Packback is it will check the cognitive level of the posts. It will give them some feedback in terms of grammar. It will also do a little bit of checking to see if the material has previously been posted. And it gives students some feedback, encouraging them to say more than, I agree. And it also encourages them to document sources and to provide resources or references for the arguments they provide. And they get a score on that. So it takes a lot of the evaluation of that away. And so I monitored all that, but it was something that seemed to function pretty well just by the interaction between the users and that system. 
I haven't really mentioned much about what I did in my online class. My online class uses many of the tools, but obviously I couldn't do synchronous because that class is fully asynchronous. I couldn't do the same type of instruction, but I had students do two other things in that class that provided opportunities for reflection. One of which was I had them work in a metacognitive cafe, low stakes discussion forum, where they reflected on what they were learning in the learning process. And that gave them another way of making connections to their learning and reflecting on how well they were learning materials and what barriers they were facing, and also sharing effective learning strategies with each other. They were given some readings each week, generally on research-based learning practices as a primer for many of those discussions. Others, they were just reflecting on what they've learned and how it might be useful in their life to tie it back to themselves. But the other thing I had students do is work on two podcast projects in that class. And in those, they were taking what they were learning and making reflections about how that connected to the world around them. Many of them ended up being related to COVID and pandemics, but they were making some really good connections and they were getting a chance to see how the material they were learning had some relevance in their own lives. And a lot of that came out in some of the things they were discussing in their podcast. And I also did use Jamboard once at the very end of the term, but I also used Google Forms a few times to have them reflect on the process of what was working, what wasn't working in the class, and what was working and what was not working in their own learning processes and what I can do and what they could do to help them learn more effectively. I don't know about you, but I was really surprised at how well synchronous learning actually went for me. I had some technical difficulties early on with my internet connection. It took me a while, but I got around to fixing that problem by hardwiring my internet and resolving some of those things. But I felt just as connected to my students as I would normally. I had a lot of interactions. And in some ways, I was able to facilitate those interactions a little more equitably online because it wasn't just the person who came to nudge me and stand in line and be the next person. Instead, I could really coordinate using waiting rooms and breakout rooms and really give everybody a chance to have one-on-one interactions with me, which I really appreciated. And I really did get to know all of my students quite well, which I was a little bit surprised about. And then in an area where it's really technical and we're doing a lot of coding and things on screen, being able to share screens and take control of another person's computer to fix things or show them how to do something was incredibly valuable. We use some of those kinds of tools in person, but it actually was, I think, in some ways more effective using this particular tool. So I was kind of surprised at how well some things worked. And I think that even when things go back to -to face-to-face, there's definitely some components here that I would keep. I'd agree. And I think students were amazed at how well some of those tools work. When in breakout rooms, they would be using the whiteboard features. They would be sharing screens. They'd be making the case. They'd be drawing on the screens. And that was something that would be much harder to do in a face-to-face environment. Initially, at the beginning of the class, I had some issues with chat being kind of flooded with irrelevant material, and I had to clamp down on that a little bit. But within a couple of weeks, they started actually using it very productively, and it provided a voice for all students, even those quiet students who would have otherwise sat in the back of this large lecture hall. They were able to type something in chat after thinking about what they wanted to say before doing it without being concerned about interrupting the discussion that was going on. And I think that was really helpful. And when I've taught large classes with three to 400 students, there's almost always three to 10 students who have trouble not having side conversations when there's other activities going on. And that mute option is kind of a nice feature. And the ability to set the microphone so they're all muted unless they choose to unmute, to have the default being muted until people click the unmute option made it really easy. 
And I was amazed at how quickly they adjusted to muting and unmuting. By the end of the term, there was maybe only once or twice a class where a family member or someone else would walk into the room and start talking, and then they'd remember they had to mute their mics. And it was very rare. In a class at large, I was impressed by it. And working with students one-on-one during office hours, it was so much easier to have students just share the screen and show you exactly what their problems were than to correspond with them with email or even have them boot up their computer or you try to find what they were talking about when they came to your office. It was just much more efficient. Yeah, I could actually see it. You can zoom in, you can see what they're talking about. I also found, and I was really floored in this last week of classes, students were doing their final presentations, how well they developed facility with these tools. They've developed a lot of fluency in the kinds of tools that are actually very relevant to my particular discipline. It's relevant to many disciplines, but designers use these tools all the time when they're working with clients. And so it was amazing to me that we got through 15 presentations so efficiently. We didn't wait for anybody to share their screen. They just knew what they needed to prepare, had it ready. They started developing slide decks really effectively and could just do the things that they needed to do really efficiently. One of the last things I said to my class was like, I'm so proud of you just being able to do that. We didn't have to wait for anybody today. That was amazing. And so maybe a little bit of a blessing in disguise. You hate saying like, oh, the plague is such a great thing, but they really did develop some useful skills and tools and they became more effective communicators. That was something that a lot of students reflected on and things that they didn't expect to learn is how much better they became collaborators and just communicators generally, not just in person, like through Zoom or in text, like through chat in Slack. Video conferencing is likely to be a part of their lives in the foreseeable future especially now that everyone has adapted to this mode. It's very useful for them to learn how to use that efficiently. The one thing I do miss, though, is seeing their faces in person and recognizing them. One concern that I have is I'm hoping to be back on campus in the fall. There may be students that I work with who interacted with me regularly, whose voice I would recognize or whose name I would recognize on the screen, but whose face I just wouldn't recognize because a very large proportion of students just didn't feel comfortable having their cameras on regularly. And I understand that. We've got a lot of students living in crowded living quarters or working with very poor network connections. But I do miss actually physically seeing them. And I had my last class session earlier today, and I encourage them to stop by in the fall and just say hello. Yeah, I mean, I agree that the physicality is certainly something that's missing. But it was amazing to me how connected I still felt to all of the students at the end of the semester. And I think that they felt connected to each other, too. And they verbalized that and also wrote that in our Jamboard reflection. So although there's much to be improved, given this was the first time out and an experiment in many ways, I'm really thankful that I read Flora Darby's book about small teaching online because that actually informed a lot of my practices, even though it was synchronous and a lot of her material was about asynchronous learning. It really did help me remind myself of things that I already knew that I needed to do, but to kind of make a checklist of things that I definitely needed to do as I was rethinking my classes for the fall. So thanks for chatting with me, John. (laughs) We always end with the question, what's next? 
I am sitting down to reflect on what worked and what didn't work to try to troubleshoot some things for the spring. And I am teaching a class that's brand new to our curriculum for the first time in the spring. And so we're developing it for online synchronous, although ultimately it's it'll probably be a face-to-face class. We've had to reconceptualize some of the things that we were going to do because of the technology limitations that students may have. If they're online, we're expecting that we might have a lot of students who are relying on their phones versus software and having access to high-end software packages or computers that can run them. So we've had to rethink things, but I'm pretty excited about being able to experiment with my students with all kinds of technology in the spring, but it's definitely a puzzle that I'm currently starting to work on. How about you, John? Well, I still have a lot of grading to do, but once that is done, one of the things I'm going to be doing is converting a textbook I had written in Econometrics to a Pressbook site, which will be a lot of conversion because it's originally in LaTeX, a typesetting language used for mathematical typing. And I'm planning to create a lot of videos. I'm hoping to get many of them done over the break so that I'm not spending 15 or 20 hours a week creating videos as I was all fall. And I'm hoping to get a little bit further ahead of the semester this time, so I'm not doing as much preparation at the last moment. And we're both going to be working on putting together a series of workshops in January for our faculty to help people prepare for whatever comes at them this spring. We're going to be really busy. (laughs) I've never spent as many hours working on my classes as I have this semester. I agree. There was a lot of startup costs converting to this modality, but I'm hoping a lot of that stuff I'll be able to keep in reuse moving forward. Thanks, John. Always nice talking to you, John. We chat all the time, but it's nice to sometimes hear about some of the thought process and things behind some of the decisions that you've made in in your classes. So it was really nice to actually hear about how you did some of that stuff this semester. So thanks. And I also appreciate hearing more about what you've been doing in your classes. We spend most of our time on podcasts talking to our guests and only mentioning little snippets of what we've been doing ourselves. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.